Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. You suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. Courtney, that was an excerpt from Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1961. Now, I know most of us think of MLK as this larger than life civil rights leader, the speeches, the the films, the newsreels, the documentary documentaries. But this quote humanizes him and his day to day struggle of being an African-American parent in the 60s during those days of having to explain to your children why they can't have the fun that all of these amusement parks were offering. Yes, Courtney, you're right. Even innocent spaces like amusement parks, skating rinks, swimming pools, and other public recreational spaces were long segregated in America, and King knew this. For years, owners of those spaces used systemically racist policies and practices to keep Black African Americans out. I remember an incident from my own childhood when my godparents took us to a swimming pool outside our hometown of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and we were turned away because of our race. I'll never forget looking through the fence at that park, watching white kids frolicking in the pool and wondering why we couldn't join the fun. That's right. Even places where fun and relaxation are paramount, the order of the day, racism and the systems it supports can be found as easy as funnel cake on a midway. Yep. Now, when we think back through history and and the efforts to desegregate public spaces and uh, accommodations during the civil rights movement, most people think of the Montgomery Boys bus boycott in 1955 and the Freedom Riders who were desegregating interstate buses. But the struggles to desegregate roller skating rinks and amusement parks and other recreational spaces played an important, if unrecognized, role in the civil rights movement. In fact, along with public schools, get this, Courtney, skating rinks and amusement parks were two of the three, uh, two out of the three hardest public spaces to desegregate. Now, Victoria W. Walcott wrote a book called Race riots and roller coasters. And in that book, she described the battles to desegregate public and leisure facilities and how those battles played a pivotal role in the U.S. civil rights movement. Now, I don't know about you, Courtney, but I was surprised to find out how much violence and resistance came along with people just trying to have fun and a bit of leisure. 
after reading the history, though, we found the topic is so big, we're going to have to do our famous multi-part podcast uh, because there's just so much to talk about. Let's start, though, with skating rinks and amusement parks for now to see how they figure into American-style systemic racism. Well, growing up in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I think a lot of other places, uh, that's the Midwest, but in the South too, roller skating was a big deal. And the crowds I mostly saw were African-American. Roller skating has been and still is a prominent fixture in the African-American community, especially since some of the first hip hop concerts were hosted at skating rinks. So I can't wait to hear and share how roller skating rolled its way through civil rights. Well, I can't wait to talk about it either, Courtney. And as a leisure activity, roller skating actually is pretty old. It goes all the way back to 1863 when the first four-wheeled skate was developed in New York in 1863, and the first roller rink was opened in the city a year later. Now, originally, roller skating was considered entertainment for the rich, but by the end of the 1800s, roller skates were being mass-produced in the U.S., and it became very popular first at the end of the first world war and then up to the beginning of the great depression it was all the rage and then it became popular again in the 1950s and then it became a mass craze in the 1970s and 80s as roller rinks became roller discos however up until the 1960s most roller skating rinks and amusement parks were either formally segregated or Black African-Americans and Hispanic people were simply barred from using them at all. Now, this segregation wasn't confined to the Jim Crow South states. In the Northern states, it was the practice of amusement park and skating rink owners to deny Black and Hispanic people entry into their facilities. There were always police and white bullies at hand to enforce these practices. So why did these innocent places, parks and skating rinks, become such flashpoints for desegregation? I'm so glad you asked, my dear niece. Well, in 1883, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down America's first Civil Rights Act, and that opened the door for Black Codes and Jim Crow. Now, in the words of historian C. Van Woodward, he said, Jim Crow laws put the authority of the state or city in the voice of the streetcar conductor, the railroad brakeman, the bus driver, the theater usher, and also into the voice of the hoodlum of the public park and playground. They gave free reign in the majesty of of the law to mass aggressions that might otherwise be curbed or deflected. What he meant is any white person was now deputized to enforce the exclusion of Black African Americans from white spaces. And defend them, they did. It was kind of like whosoever will, you know, can control the space as long as you're white. Now, often spouting the rallying cry of protecting white women and girls from black male aggressive in animalistic sexuality, that was normally their main defense, segregation as a form of protection. Yes, the old trope of protecting the white woman. Now, the struggle to desegregate recreation facilities began after the first migration and rapidly increased 
after the Second World War. Now, these campaigns took many forms with civil rights organizations and even unions leading the way, using a combination of pickets, boycotts, and legal maneuvers to challenge segregation. Now, in 1938, the Communist Party of the USA organized an interracial campaign to desegregate a roller skating rink in Brooklyn, New York. And the following year, black and white catering workers union members in New York threatened to take the Mecca roller skating palace to court when it couldn't sell tickets to their black members. The management eventually backed down and a victory was celebrated with a mass integrated roller skate party at the Mecca. And then the CIO union organized a campaign against the racial bans at the Rocky Springs Park in the same year. So between the um, Communist Party of the USA and the um, unions, there was a a big push to wipe out uh, segregation at these rinks. And Aunt Carol, I understand that one of the most famous cases involving desegregating a skating rink was in 1942 when CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, went after White City Roller Skating Park in Chicago. When CORE's legal challenge failed, it changed its tactics and organized direct action against the rink. That's right. That's right, Courtney. CORE developed the tactic of the stand-in, and that meant they would block the entrances to these places so nobody could get in. Now, those protests went on for several months, and a number of activists were arrested, but they did manage to cut the attendance down by 50%, and the white city management was forced to desegregate the rink. Now, following the victory against White City, CORE led some other successful campaigns to desegregate recreational facilities in Chicago, New Jersey, Cleveland, and even Los Angeles. And the famous photographer Richard Avedon showed Black skaters carrying signs that said things like, put down hate and let's skate. Now, um, to counter that, there were Ku Klux Klan members who held up their own uh, placards that had swastikas on them. Real classy as always. (laughs) As always. But not to be outdone by CORE, the NAACP also organized legal challenges to segregated roller rinks in Flint, Michigan, New Jersey, Cincinnati, and a host of other towns and cities. Black skaters refused to be deterred and kept from the hobby they loved, adopting the slogan, forward forever, backwards never. And one man wanted to show how serious skaters were about freedom. His name was Ledger Smith, but many people called him Roller Man. He skated 685 miles from Chicago to Washington, D.C. to attend the March on Washington. But what about amusement parks, St. Carol? What was being done to deal with the systematic racism and those practices to keep African-Americans about out of those fun spaces? Now, those efforts to desegregate skating rinks actually went hand in hand with desegregating amusement parks since these rinks were oftentimes they were inside the amusement parks. Now, major civil rights campaigns targeted Gwen Oak Park, an amusement park in Baltimore, and um, Fountain Ferry in Louisville, where there were major racial clashes when Black African-Americans tried to enter the park. And since you just brought up the NAACP, the case known as NAACP Legal Action versus Coney Island became a flashpoint in Cincinnati, Ohio. The case involved a woman named Marion Spencer. About 60 years ago, when Marion Spencer called Coney Island, 
about its admissions policy, she was assured that the park was open to everybody. So Spencer asked the woman on the phone, to everybody, we are Negroes and I would not like to have them refuse. She was referring to her two sons that she wanted to take to the park. Well, there was this long pause and the other lady on the end of the line said, no, they can't come, they can't come. We, we can't admit Negroes. And then she added, but I don't make the rules. Well, Spencer said, I know you don't make the rules, honey, but I'm going to find out who does. Now, the owners of Coney Island argued their park had to be segregated because whites from nearby Kentucky frequented it. You know, that was a southern state, and I guess they were appeasing their southern customers. But Marion Spencer joined a movement of civil rights leaders and citizens, both black and white, and their persistence through protest and the courts led to the desegregation of Coney Island in 1955 and eventually the integration of its legendary sunlit pool. Wow, and Carol, now I've heard of calling ahead to make sure there's enough room. Can you accommodate this dietary need or I have a big group coming, but it still makes me, and I'll be very honest, angry that in your lifetime, people still had to call ahead to make sure that an amusement park would allow their black children through their gates. And unfortunately, a lot of our white friends and listeners may have fond and fun memories of these locations, not even considering the memories these same amusement parks hold for their Black African-American friends, which are not fun memories at all. No, Courtney, not at all. Most of the memories are not pleasant ones. And just like you said, checking ahead to uh, see if accommodations like restaurants and parks would uh, accept Black African-Americans. That's a regular practice. I remember as a kid taking a family road trip to Niagara Falls. And whenever we stopped to eat at a restaurant, your grandfather always had us wait in the car while he went inside. Now, it wasn't until I was an adult that he told me he went in to check to make sure Black people were served there. He said he didn't mind getting embarrassed if he were turned away for his race, but he wasn't going to let that happen to his children and wife. Now, Marion Spencer, as we talked about, was quite a fighter. And figuratively speaking, she was a fighter. But I believe you have a story about how an amusement park in Maryland became a violent scene of racial strife. That's right. Now, as the jingle goes, it says fun is where you find it. And the answer back is, where do you find it? Well, the answer that everyone in Glen Echo, Maryland and the surrounding areas knew was you could find fun at Glen Echo Amusement Park. And that boast was made on radio jingles uh, as far away as Pennsylvania and as far south as South Carolina for people to come. But Glen Echo Park, located in Glen Echo, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., was not fun for everyone. But a group of Howard University students inspired by the lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina, and facing a lifetime of Jim Crow segregation and Northern racism, along with the Jewish community who experienced their own atrocities at the hands of the Nazis, banded together to challenge the park's claims of fun for everyone. Okay, so here's a group that uh, they're having their own version of desegregation. So what happened? Exactly. Now, from its beginnings in 1891, Glen Echo Park only advertised in newspapers with primarily white readership, such as the Washington Post and Evening Star. Now, the Post 
now the park wasn't strictly segregated by visitation by black individuals and families, but it wasn't encouraged either. Now, excursion groups were very lucrative to park management, and they would often book Sunday school groups from both black and white communities on the same day. And this, you know, continued through the 1920s. But something happened around 1931 that hardened the restrictions and almost, you know, pretty much segregated the park. It was the opening of the Crystal Pool. Now, from 1931 up through the 50s, the park security just did not admit Black patrons. The policy was widely understood, and it, there was no sign posted, but people just knew if you were Black, just don't even bother trying to get into Glen Echo Park. Now, there was a sign never, you know, there never was any official sign posted, but the security did their job not to admit Black patrons. So even though it was an official policy, word spread. You know, don't even bother trying to get to Glen Echo Park if you're black because they're not going to let you in. And I remember as a kid, that was pretty typical. Uh, black African-American families knew where they could and couldn't take their kids. Uh, and so there wasn't really any need for a sign. The word was out on the grapevine, basically. Well, in 1960, the sit-ins by Black college students at lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina, inspired similar protests around the country. And in Washington, D.C., Howard University students, one of our, our famous HBCUs, started a group called the Nonviolent Action Group, led by Lawrence Henry. Now, on June 9th, 1960, six students from the Nonviolent Action Group, or NAG, sat down at the counter of the Cherrydale Drug Fair and refused to move. Now, in a photograph that was taken that day of the drugstore sit-in, then-college student Dion Diamond is seen being verbally attacked by a white child. Now, Dion was later quoted as saying, there was this 12-year-old kid who was telling me, why are you here? Why don't you go where you belong, uh, Diamond said. And she said, I just looked at him trying to figure out how this kid could be so young and treating me like this. Now, behind Dion in the photo is a lady by the name of Joan Mulholland. And then she was Joan Trumpauer. That was her maiden name. She was a Duke University student, but she was also a member of NAG, one of the few white women to participate in the Arlington, Virginia sit-ins. What she remembers most um, vividly is the eventual appearance of the American Nazi Party. Now, this is the 60s. So people know people who have fought in World War II and fought the Nazis. So the fact that there is an American Nazi party just showing up, even though it was a small hate field group based in Arlington, Virginia, was troubling. And this group was led by George Lincoln Rockwell. Now, Joan says the Nazis, brown shirts and swastika armbands, uh, it all made me concerned about what could happen. And she said that in, a in an interview with the DCist. But violence never erupted during these protests, and they worked. Within two weeks, lunch counters across Arlington, Virginia, were desegregated. Now, encouraged by their victory at the lunch counters, NAG set their sights on the infamous Fun Park, and soon they would find allies with a D.C. neighborhood who had been fighting against Glen Echo's policy for years. The residents of, ben, of, a, 
of Bannockburn were made up of several left-leaning liberals who had come to the area as a part of President Roosevelt's New Deal in search of jobs and a large Jewish population who themselves had escaped the Nazi Germany. And, you know, the irony was not lost on them um, seeing Rockwell's American Nazi Party, but it didn't scare them like when they were children and young adults. They were mad and ready for action. Now, the members of the nearby Bannock Burners, which is what they named themselves, had boycotted the park, written to local newspapers, and appealed to the Montgomery uh, County Council, all in hopes of pressuring Glen Echo Park to desegregate. But by June 1960, the Bannock Burners and, and Nag had joined forces to create a united picket line. And with, the, with that, the date was set for June 30th as the day that they would personally desegregate Glen Echo Park. Well, Courtney, it sounds like a lot of tension is building up here. Desegregating parks and uh, trying to get people to change their policies was pretty tough back in the day. So we're going to wait until after the break to hear what happens as this group attempts to change Glen Echo Park. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, all right, Courtney, we're back. And uh, you've been talking about civil rights sit-ins. And now you're bringing us up to speed on a attempt to desegregate an amusement park. And I'm mighty afraid that this group is headed for trouble because back then, Violence was actually an anti-desegregation tool that whites used to ensure that uh, attempts to desegregate public spaces like pools and amusement parks and skating rinks didn't happen. So I'm wondering what happened. Well, you're right, Ankara. Using segregation as a safety measure was also used. Like we, the police or people would say, we don't want riots or fights. Um, and that's normally what happens. So we're going to just protect everybody by saying, you know, Black people can't come here. Weird argument, strange flex, but okay. But now when we left off, our two groups, Nag and the Bannock Burners, had joined forces and were heading out on June 30th, 1960, to Glen Echo Park to desegregate it. They had a group of about 60 people with picket signs saying, Glen Echo should echo democracy. Discrimination is not our generation and bigotry is no fun. I like that collection of signs. Very clever. I do, I do like the signs and the slogans that are coming from this era. They should be on T-shirts. But Dr. Marva Sanders, who is now 83 years old and a dermatologist in California, remembers his experience as a teenage protester, a teenage college student protesting um, Glen Echo Park. And he was also a part of this large interview with these Glen Echo Park protesters in 2018. Now he recounts his events of this of that day. He said, I was passing out pamphlets when an elderly man slapped me. Remember Saunders, 
A police officer ran up and asked the elderly man if I had hit him. As expected, I was considered black and wrong. Okay, so everything gets turned around the opposite way. Hmm. Now, the group's initial target was the restaurant because they had success desegregating the lunch counter. But they were, you know, they were going to hold their sit-in at the restaurant. But they were immediately told the restaurant was closed. Things were shut down. They were denied entry. And they also tried to get ice cream as well with the white protesters. And that was not going to happen either. So they set their sights on the beautiful carousel and you can you know those carousels with the whirlits are organ and the lights mm-hmm. that's the type of carousel that it is so around 6 p.m a dozen of dozen protesters headed towards the carousel now they held tickets that were purchased for them by white protesters because they knew as black people they could not get the tickets sold to them so the bannock burners bought the tickets and then handed them to black protesters and joan mulholland um, trump hour at the time still has her uh, ticket that she posted uh purchased for one of her black friends displayed in a scrapbook to this very day now they took their seats on the brightly colored carousel um, on their animals as the peppy organ music began to play but the ride operator refused to start the ride now, for people who are familiar with this incident, and it is, and I will definitely put the link in the show notes because this is recorded history, no doubt know the famous exchange between Officer Frank Collins and uh, NAG organizer Lawrence Henry. And their confrontation is just a look of American race relations as it was captured by radio reporter Sam Smith. Now, I'm going to read you guys the transcript, which is a portion of what went down. So it's Officer Collins beginning the conversation. He says, are you white or colored? And Lawrence responds, am I white or colored? That's correct. I want to know. Can I ask your race? My race, I belong to the human race. All right, this park, it's segregated. I don't understand what you mean. It's strictly for white people. It's strictly for white persons? Mm-hmm, it's been that way for years. You're telling me because my skin is black, I cannot come into your park? Not because your skin is black, I asked what your race was. I would like to know why I cannot come into your park because the park is segregated and it's private property. Just what class of people do you allow to come in here? Now the exchange goes further and now this is before the days of body cameras and 24 hour news, but the fact that this recording still is available to hear is a window into the past of this pretty historic day in civil rights history. Now after a two and a half hour standoff, Five black protesters were arrested for trespassing. Like I said, Dr. Marvis Sanders, who is now 83 years old, along with Bill Griffin, Michael Proctor, Cecil Washington, and future Maryland state senator Gwendolyn Green, who her constituents may know her now as Gwendolyn Britt. Now, the five protesters were held in jail for an hour or two before being bailed out by the local NAACP legal team. But the next day, they were back at the park gates as the crowds and media attention grew. Now, Dion Diamond, who I mentioned before, she was arrested on a later date with Lawrence Henry because their pictures were plastered all over the newspaper. So they were arrested. But she cites that the presence of the medium 
media is what kept violence to a minimum. Now, the picketing continued through the summer and stayed respectfully peaceful, despite counter-protesting from George Lincoln Rockwell and his American Nazi party. Now, George Lincoln Rockwell and a white student by the name of Paul D. Dietrich got into a fist fight and they were arrested on July 3rd, but nothing much came about it, came of it. But something that got to me and Carol were the protesters who were there. They were actual Holocaust survivors protesting against Nazis. And they were, like I said, mad. Some of them even showed them their tattoos that they received in the camps as a sign of defiance and protests in the face of the brown shirts who were trying to keep the park as white only. Wow, what a historic uh, time frame. All of this happening not that long after World War II and the memory of Nazi Germany. I mean, these people had the, again, the tattoos on their arms to show the degradation that they had experienced. And here they are in their own country just trying to get into an amusement park. And helping others. I like the idea that they recognize our struggle may not be the same, but we know evil when we see it and we're going to see it, say it and confront it along with these teens and do something about it. Now, on September 11th, the park closed for the season and the protesters vowed to return the next year. But that winter, both the nonviolent action group and the Bannock Burners would get some very powerful help to fight to desegregate Glen Echo Park. Now, Bannock Burn resident Hyman Bookbinder was the newly appointed assistant secretary of commerce. Um, well, he was the newly appointed secretary to Luther Hodges, who was the secretary of commerce. But he had a better idea. A small part of the park's property was leased from the federal government. Now, using his government connections, Bookbinder appealed to U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and asked if the park's lease could be revoked if they continued their policy of segregation. And it worked. With Kennedy knocking at the door, Glen Echo Park uh, owners Abraham and Sam Baker's Baker gave in to desegregation on March 14, 1961, as of the park's opening on March 31st. Glen Echo will be open to all races for the first time in its 52-year history. What a struggle. Wow. Now, for the Howard College students who were there that day, this victory inspired some of them to continue their work with the movement. Both Dion Diamond and Judith Mulholland joined the Freedom Riders. Now, for others, Bill Griffin and Dr. Marvis Sanders, this was their only foray into the civil rights movement. But when asked about the event, I think Dr. Saunders sums it up in his own way uh, very simply. It was an opportunity to do something. We were trying to make life a little better for those folks who happen to be Black. Now, the park is now under the National Park Service totally. They still hold Saturday night dances during the season. And by the carousel is a plaque commemorating what happened there on June 30th, 1960. Well, Courtney, that's quite a story about Glen Echo Park and amusement parks around the country. It's it's actually emblematic of the struggles that took place, usually not necessarily in the South, but usually in the Midwest and the West is where these parks were hotly contested. 
And it's interesting that um, it took, again, federal intervention to desegregate what we would think is a simple leisure recreation area and amusement park. So what about today in Carroll? Um, what was the result of all these efforts to desegregate skating rinks? Like I said, I was a roller skater so, and I love amusement parks. So what came of all of that hard work? Well, let's let's talk about it. By the early 1970s, most of America's urban amusement parks like Cleveland's Euclid Beach and Chicago's Riverview were closed for good. And that was because some white consumers said the newly integrated parks were unsafe. And in turn, the park owners just sold the land for considerable profit. Sounds like some of our stories that we've uh, told about uh, when we talked about redlining. Now, other urban leisure sites, public swimming pools, bowling alleys, and some roller skating rinks, they also closed down as whites fled the cities for the suburbs. And these closures opened the door for the birth of amusement parks like Disneyland, but more about that later. Now, when it comes to skating rinks, though, the story was a little bit different. By the end of the 1960s, most rinks were desegregated. Ironically, though, roller rink owners thought desegregation would ruin their profits, so they came up with a new scheme. They realized this, hey, if we integrate all of our nights, all of these establishments are going to close down. We have to find a way to keep them segregated. So since they were no longer allowed to call them black nights and white nights, they just started using coded language. They would call white nights, that is when the whites were supposed to come, uh, they would call those nights things like top 40 nights and family night. And then uh, they would call the nights they wanted their black African-American customers to come nights like soul night and Martin Luther King Jr. night. The line was drawn in the sand and African-Americans continued skating on the nights they previously had been allowed to go. And that is carried through to today for the most part. And I can attest to that. Now, growing up, you knew what night you wanted to skate on. That was when they had the best music or the music you listened to. And that's what we based on was music. Nobody really wanted to skate to Phil Collins. We wanted to, you know, skate to what we were listening to at the time. And I like Phil Collins, but I don't want to skate to him. Um, but the truth, now learning the truth that this was old school coded language makes me want to go back and think like, okay, why was all this going on? So uh, you taught me something. Well, I hope I've taught something to everybody. I hope we've taught something to everybody. Skating rinks didn't have to post those whites only signs anymore, but the names of the skate nights, just like you pointed out, and the type of the music that they played made it clear which races were welcome to attend and when. Now, oddly, this resegregation had somewhat of a positive effect because it played a pivotal role in the early promotion of hip hop, like you pointed out earlier. Now, in the 80s, when artists like salt and Pepper, Naughty by Nature, NWA, and their fans were eyed with suspicion by many established concert halls, skating rinks happily accepted them. For example, Dr. Dre got his start as a DJ spinning at Skate Town in Los Angeles. Now, get this, Courtney, respect for the skating rinks runs so deep that at the peak of the gang wars between the Crips and the Bloods in Los Angeles in the 80s, 
places like Skate Town, which was in Blood's territory, and World of Wheels, which was in Crip's territory, these were considered exempt from the conflict, and people could go there and skate without fear of any anger, any violence, or any concerns. And I think that's why skating rinks are still considered safe and somewhat sacred places for so many Africans, African Americans. We even have classic movies about the skating rink, like Roll Bound, starring, starring rapper Shad Bawa Moss, and one of my favorite skating movies, ATL, with rapper Tip T.I. Harris. But learning all this history makes those movies and about those Black stories so much more rich showing that experience and so much more important but as these good as these are good things i'm sure everything is not perfect in skateland and somewhere racism is lurking around the snack bar well absolutely and just in those names of the different skate nights we've already seen it was brought up to the present there's uh definitely been some not so positive outcomes of keeping skating rinks resegregated for example um, recently, the well-known companies such as Planet Roller Skate came under fire for censoring Black African-American voices. Planet Roller Skate had no problem when skaters posted on their Facebook page about sexism and misogyny. However, when Black African-American skaters posted about the killing of George Floyd and supporting Black Lives Matter, their posts were deleted and deemed too political. Now, social media censorship is uh, under the guise of not making people uncomfortable is not new. Remember our episode about the, the beach in California and the lady who was, you know, her posts were being uh, censored. Uh, so this isn't new. Now, for those of us who were glued to social media during the pandemic days of 2020, definitely saw a resurgence in roller skating with African-American skaters taking to the forefront of to some a new trend, but to us, not so new. But as it often goes on TikTok, the trend was soon whitewashed on many different media outlets. My husband and I were watching a news segment on Entertainment Tonight where they talked about all these skaters and what they were doing, and none of them are African-American. And we saw the first couple videos of the Black girls skating. None of them were mentioned. Now, on social media explore pages, the Black communities who've kept skating alive for decades have been left out. In a piece on the website Mashable titled The Whitewashing of Roller Skating's Online Revival, reporter Jess Joho explains the online skating craze comes with an undercurrent of racism and Black erasure. Now, just watch the HBO documentary United Skates to learn how Black how the black skating community was a part of the civil rights movement, just like we were talking about, as well as the emergence of hip hop. But if you go on TikTok, you see that skating is huge, but you don't see a lot of black faces. But if you want to help, please follow black skaters on TikTok and Instagram to boost their visibility as well. Yes, skating is part of the Black African-American culture, and it's a shame that now in this era, uh, one method of a level of systemic racism is that erasure of that culture and the refusal to recognize it as what it is. Um, 
Another issue we see today is that communities try to get rinks shut down in urban neighborhoods. And there is often a police presence on nights with predominantly black skaters. So here we see another way that uh, systemic racism is coming into play as it relates to skating and recreation. Now, usually when there are mostly white skaters at those rinks, police and internal security are nowhere to be found. Well, now that's something I have also witnessed firsthand at the skating rink. Now, of course, there were simple teenage squabbles and sometimes it escalated. Um, but I always remember, even if nothing was going on on those urban or soul nights that you mentioned, the police, the actual police uh, were often there several cars deep. And it was more like contain and control instead of serve and protect. Now, when it comes to amusement parks, systemic racism hasn't gone away either. The increase of gated communities and homeowners associations with uh, what the political scientist Evan McKenzie calls privatopia also led to the privatization of recreation. So where does Disney fall into all of this, Aunt Carol? Well, that's what I was hoping you'd ask me about, my dear niece. Walt Disney opened Disneyland Park in 1955 amidst that sea of social unrest and racial riots and litigation and demonstrations that we talked about earlier where Black African-Americans were trying to desegregate these leisure activities like skating rinks and amusement parks and swimming pools. Now, Disneyland opened and it was never officially segregated like many northern parks and especially those in the West that we talked about. And it never had to be, quote unquote, integrated. However, it began a period of development, expansion and change in American amusement that resulted in the closure of many traditional parks and the development of theme parks away, far, far away from urban centers. So why is that a big deal? And what does that have to do with systemic racism? Well, in an essay by Jill Morris, she argues that Disney profited off an, econo uh, an economic system that valued the white dollar above others and would make the modern American theme park a white space, just like the segregated parks of the past. So hang in here. Here's Morris's premise. Disney introduced the single flat entrance fee that almost all amusement parks use today. These fees can amount to hundreds of dollars for a family to attend. Now, in addition, these parks moved out of urban areas, unlike earlier amusement parks that were built at the end of the public transportation lines that anybody could take. Now, the high cost of admission, coupled with the difficulty in getting to modern amusement parks, tends to discriminate against some patrons who can't afford the expense of park admission and transportation. Sometimes that puts Black African-Americans of lesser means at a disadvantage. In essence, for some parents, Dr. King's quote about not being able to take his children to amusement park is still true. Even though the whites only signs are gone, now the bar is actually economic. Jill Morris refers to Disney's impact on the amusement park industry as colorblind racism. 
And for those of us, and I was a lucky kid. I've I've been to Disney World. My dad actually moved to Florida to be closer to Disney World. So we're a Disney family, but I understand the cost uh, calculated is almost up, upwards to $10,000 for a family of four to spend a week at Disney World with all the perks. And there's something else going on with Disney World. That sugary, sweet feeling of Americana, the fact that they pump that scent of popcorn on Main Street, is all about what Walt Disney loved about America. Uh, But Walt Disney had some very questionable ideas about America and the people that lived in America and other countries, but our listeners are going to have to look that up on their own. But those of us who have studied the history of the Disney parks would know that there was one and once an Aunt Jemima restaurant in Disneyland. Now that was a chain of restaurants throughout the country at the time, but the Aunt Jemima Pancake House made its home in the center of Frontierland in Disneyland, overlooking the Rivers of America attraction. Now guests could reach the restaurant from Adventureland or good old Main Street, and they would find a patio at the edge of Frontier uh, Land's main block of stores. Um, now it's called, it was rethemed as uh, Bell River Terrace, but there would be men and women uh, dressed up as servants and the women dressed up like Aunt Jemima serving pancakes and we all know how problematic that image is not say you can't love pancakes but that image is very problematic now for many this restaurant still elicits fond memories for the time period and it was a great business deal for Walt Disney and Disneyland who needed sponsors at the time to get the park up and running but it still also speaks to the tone deafness uh, of all those all-American ideals and American exceptionalism that Disney stood on in those days and some still tend to miss. Well, Courtney, restaurants aside, likely things have changed at Disney properties since then. Their executives now require employees to take trainings on systemic racism, white privilege, white fragility, and white saviors. And they've launched racially segregated affinity groups at the company's headquarters. And Disney also overhauled one of their most famous rides, the Splash Mountain Ride, which was themed to the notorious Disney movie Song of the South, which glorifies uh, very racist ideals and stereotypes um, that had this shiny image of after slavery with Uncle Remus and and all that type of of storytelling they repurposed it and turned it into a ride that housed uh, Disney's first African-American princess Princess Tiana so now it's a princess and the frog ride which is exciting for me because I love Princess Tiana but not everybody does Um, in a now infamous article um, a gentleman from Las Vegas by the name of uh, Jonathan Vans Borkrek said that he doesn't like the woke Disney he doesn't like the wokeness that he experienced during his visit he was upset that disney had taken uh, was taken over by wokeness and he did not like them making an effort to remove some of the outdated and offensive elements to the rides of pirates of the caribbean there's a bride sale in there and to the tribes the disrespect to the indigenous tribes and they had head shrinkers and all that in the jungle cruise as well as those problematic themes in splash mountain he can he complained that the removal of these elements somehow took him out of the disney magic so i guess he means that you know you took the joy out of 
of me being a colonizer and my own version of history brought to you by good old Walt. But let me stop because I do, I do love Disney, but I understand that Disney can be problematic. But at least Disney is trying. But what about other parks, Aunt Carol? Because I remember you telling me about Six Flags over Texas and one of those flags being very, very questionable. Well, uh, you're right, Courtney. One of the flags, in fact, it was a Confederate flag that was questionable. Six Flags, of course, was the theme park that flew the Six Flags over its entrance that were also the Six Flags that at one time had flown over the state and at one time country, the Republic of Texas. Now, um, I distinctly remember the day Six Flags announced it would stop flying the Confederate flag over its park entrances. And actually they've substituted those flags for all American flags uh, flying over the entrance to the parks. And it's a symbolic change, but a change for all the better, I would say. Well, I think it's a change for the better because I know for a lot of people, me included, African-American people and uh, people of other races, seeing that Confederate flag does not stir up any type of pride. It's fear and, you know, anxiety. You know, I came here to have a good time. What what is this about? So at least they are trying. Now, I hope our listeners uh, will continue to listen to our suite on recreation and fun as they conclude their summer vacations. So those of you on a road trip, if you need something to listen to, you have these episodes and any of our back episodes where you can and you can find them on our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question why are they so angry as always we hope you learn something so you can see it say it and confront it